Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. My name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Uh, sorry, that's not the usual order. Um, you can find us on Twitter at uh, Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at, at Trilon Cinema across all social media and at Trilon.org to purchase tickets uh, to various movies that play there, um, including one we're about to talk about today. Again, my name is Jason, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Cody is the name, a likable young man who thinks only kind thoughts and performs only noble deeds. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Uh, I'm going to try to follow up Cody's. I think that skulls are just as interesting as naked women. And my name is Harry and you can find me at Shiitake Harry. All right. I really like this Cody's Nodi energy that we've got like front loaded into the episode we've like made bespoke intros i wish i knew that we were going to do that because now i feel like a fool for both bungling the intro and not having a cool thing to say but you know i'm gonna roll with it how do you guys feel like cody why, why was, did you do that? i like it too i it was a it was a quote that i knew i couldn't fit in anywhere else and i just wanted to get it in at the beginning because i'm stubborn and uh a, a bit of an arse. Um, so <laughs> sorry to throw off any rhythm. I love the energy you're bringing, Jason. Uh, you're killing it. Super producer. Podcasting is such a torment. It's like loving someone in the darkness who never answers, no matter how loud you call, <laughs> especially oh, when you God. have as few listeners as we do. <laughs> uh, and as any cinephile will know from that reference, uh, we are going to be talking about Ingmar Bergman's the seventh seal, 1957, uh, Swedish film. Um, in which uh, Max von Sydow plays Antonius Bloch, a crusader, freshly home from the Crusades, on the brink of death, who actually confronts him personified, and they play a chess match for his life. Um, and Antonius Bloch takes uh, takes his time trying to extend his life uh, just a bit to get one good deed under his belt before he actually passes. And uh, and the movie that follows is just sort of tracing his, his attempts to do so and the people he meets and the opportunities he has and squanders and earns. Um, was, do I, do I, I know I don't sound like Aaron, but was that the essence of an, of a Grossman summary? A fine summary. Oh yes. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, I have been trying to get us into a rhythm of just putting together like your quick one shot thoughts. And then I always scurry out without actually doing mine. But if you if you guys want to go for like your quick takes on uh, like an overview of the movie and we can sort of dig in as we go, uh, that'll give me time to put mine together. Sound good? Sure. Yeah, definitely. I can uh, stall a bit for you, Jason. Um, This was my second uh, experience with the seventh seal. Uh, The first time I watched it was at some time in college. And come to think of it, it may or may not have been with Aaron. It may have been with non-Aaron people. I can't quite remember. Um, it's not something I watched for a class, though I did watch Bergman's Persona for a film class uh, at some point along the way. Uh, part of the reason that I think that his 
films, or at least these two, I haven't seen any other Brickmans, uh, pe- peeling back the curtain, uh, is that they, they work so well as critical stepping stones, I think, because the, the visual motifs are really very strong and intentional and beautiful. And I think that's the source of a lot of Seventh, Se- Seventh Seal's uh, <laughs> staying power. That was a mouthful. Uh, there are lots of timeless, uh, eternal struggles at play here. The questioning of one's faith, the fear of death, reconciling our own wrongdoings or just lack of doings in our lifetimes, uh, accompanied with images that blend the the surreal and the mystical with our own harsh realities, or at least the reality that we're shown here. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say I enjoyed uh, my time with this movie. I watched it last night. Um, the rationale for that being because uh, I've been pretty well isolated for six months and I've had an accidental uh, run lately of watching movies that confront the uh, that confront me, the viewer, with uh, my own mortality uh, a lot. So it was kind of uh, a lot to take in at times, uh, but I appreciate what Seventh Seal is doing and I think it's relatively good at doing it. Interesting. Um, I guess I should specify my own relationship with Igmar Bergman. I consider myself a, a Bergman fan, a Bergman, if you will. Um, I've seen, uh, let's see, Shame, Persona, uh, The Hour of the Wolf, um, Cries and Whispers, one other one that I can't recall off the top of my head, and now this. So I'm still sort of a Bergman neophyte a, a bit because he has such a um, well-regarded and extensive filmography that I've, I've just sort of skirted the surface of. Uh, this was my first interaction with this movie. It's I found it very interesting and very um, ironic, I guess. My... My impression of the movie, which is an impression that was given to me by the sort of critical consensus, was that it was going to be very austere, very unapproachable, very sort of philosophical. Yeah. And um, interestingly enough, all of the reading I did about this movie before and after I watched it confirmed that opinion that the critical consensus and sort of um, retrospective reviews of this film have really done it a disservice in making it out to be unapproachable or arcane um, and overly intellectual, all of which I found fascinating because I actually, I enjoyed my experience with this very much. I wasn't expecting it to be funny, but I did find it funny at times. I wasn't expecting it to be immediately emotionally gripping in the way that it was for me. Uh, I, in fact, I found it um, very approachable, even much more so than some of his later films, which is interesting because oftentimes I feel like uh, directors tend to go the opposite way. And that's sort of the reputation of this film. So I, I had a different experience with it than I thought I would and came away with a really positive feeling toward it. Um, and uh, I'd be really interested to explore that some more to hear your thoughts on it. But uh, all that is to say that I was expecting to have a challenge here, right? And that's the sort of reputation that the film establishes, uh, or at least that the critical consensus establishes about the film. But I actually had a much more immediate enjoyment of it than I was prepared for. And I'm interested in exploring why, (laughs) I guess. Perfect. Uh, Harry, your take is much closer to my own experience with the film than, than Cody's. Uh, I, 
I, I too have only seen two Bergman films, including this one. Um, Harry, do you remember which one we saw at the trial line? Was it Hour of the Wolf? Because that's the other one that I've seen, but I don't remember the title or honestly much of the plot. Okay. Uh, Hour of the Wolf is the one where a man is losing his mind uh, on an isolated island with his wife. Is that the one you've seen? Yes. Yes. That, yeah. that was it. We saw so that I'll, at the trial line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was, of course, a wonderful watching experience, but I think it might have been the wrong thing to make my first Bergman. Sure. Uh, it, it was... In, in the ways that you're saying that Seventh Seal wasn't uh, sort of impenetrable, was was more approachable, I think that uh, Hour of the Wolf was a little bit less those things, a little more esoteric. Um, and I'm sure on rewatch, it'd be a lot easier to, to grok it. But uh, so that just means that in the case of Seventh Seal, you know, I first heard about Seventh Seal in like late high school, early college. I, you know, didn't grow up with incredibly austere or like, you know, dedicated film fan friends, you know, people who sort of knew the scene, but were more into more modern stuff. Um, and then whatever my mom watched and she's not a big fan of Ingmar Bergman. He's a, he's a little out there for, but, uh, so a movie as old as the seventh seal just stood out in my mind as one of those movies that I would never really quite understand, but that I should watch someday. If I say that I appreciate or like movies, uh, and I think that the v- sort of vision I got of it was definitely painted by the, um, you know, the, the vision of the, I forget the actor's name, but who plays death and a block just sort of, you know, confronting one another. And I thought it was going to be much more like, you know, experimental and strange and, uh, and intangible than it really was. But like you're saying, Harry, it was, it was at times funny. It's more or less linear. Um, it is way more personal than I thought. Uh, I got that feeling while watching it. And then immediately after the movie, I started reading about it and it turns out that it, it, or at least people have suggested that it was probably influenced by a lot of, um, Bergman's own struggles with his faith and with his, uh, sort of, I think it was Catholic upbringing. Um, oh, you know, it was Catholic upbringing, baby. (laughs) You know it, uh, but sort of his, his own struggles with, you know, the silence of God and, you know, the, the ever presence of death and that kind of stuff that would come to apparently define a lot of his later, uh, output because I guess he struck gold, uh, struck a main vein in knowing what, what he was good at doing and what he was able to tell truthfully. Uh, but I, I did enjoy my experience of watching this movie. Um, it, like I said, was a lot, I don't want to sound like a fool, but it, it was a lot easier to understand, I guess, a lot easier to follow and less moments of me standing back and saying what's going on here and me trying to connect all the pieces as I was going, because it was kind of laying them out for me, you know, very Uh, much. So there's, there's a lot of this movie that is, I thought I was going to have to put together myself. And then there's a scene that's just kind of like block explaining it. Uh, and him just like making text, the things that I thought were going to be subtext for me to add up in the end, which is honestly not unappreciated in a movie where I don't speak the language that's being spoken. So I have to read and comprehend everything that's being spoken. It, I, I do appreciate a certain level of like, Hey, meet me 60% of the way and we'll, and we'll get there eventually. Um, again, that's probably a somewhat prejudiced view of how this movie played out. But, uh, for my own viewing experience, this was, uh, you know, quite enjoyable, uh, often funny, um, very uncomfortable in subject matter. The more and more I thought about it, you know, moment to moment, it has that way of sort of shrugging the discomfort of what it's actually talking about and what it's saying. Uh, but you know what the sort of thing I came away with, and it's not a perfect met or comparison, but like, is that this is in, in a lot of ways, uh, a somewhat more pretentious, like Roman Catholics version of a serious man, 
where where it's just all about <laughs> how how religion is unprepared to uh guide you through the real struggles of life and how in order to like confront your own mortality you must first put away assumptions of of what comes after sort of thing um jason i love that comparison so much (laughs) well uh you should go back and listen to our well not you but listeners should go back and listen to our episode about a serious man where we really dig into what that movie means to us and sort of what we got out of it but uh i feel like i'm we just talked before we started about not rambling and i feel like i'm rambling um so i want to dig in I really want to dig in, Harry, because you and I, not to sideline Cody, I do want to dig into some of what you said, but because I'm sort of in a flow of where Harry and I, uh, like the confluence of our ideas about this movie, I want to see, I want to know, one, why you've got your hand up in Zencaster, and two, what you found, <laughs> what you found to be, uh, you know, funny and emotionally gripping, and and why that surprised you. Uh, okay, well, first of all, I'm sorry I put up my hand. I just. Um, no, 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 please. You, right you said several things that I really wanted to dig into. The first of which was that you were interested in how the the movie spells out its themes as sort of a an opening gambit, right? That was something that was very surprising to me, um, stylistically and in terms of uh, the sort of thematic purpose of this movie. I'm, I'm I was going to say methodology, I suppose that was surprising to me as well, right? I think that that when you're confronting, for lack of a better term, a Bergman movie, you're sort of suspecting something like Persona, where almost after you watch the movie, you have to figure out what the movie was about before you can even begin to interface with the scenes on an emotional level, right? So there's there's almost homework you have to do before you can be... Um, immediate with the film in the way that you want to. Maybe that's just my experience with that movie. That was resoundingly not the case for this movie um, to the point where it felt purposeful that, as you said, Jason, the movie goes out of its way to spell out the emotional and intellectual stakes of the scenes that follow in order to get you to an emotional um, empathetic place with the characters. I think this movie does such an effective job of framing what you're meant to be thinking about and what you're meant to be feeling and how you're meant to analyze the character's motivations in this sort of broad, um, overarching thematic sense where not to go back to and and reveal my own lack of broader education, but to go back to a couple of movies we've talked about on the podcast, um, there were sequences of this that reminded me of Kurosawa and that reminded me of Almodovar in particular Rashomon did this where Rashomon does a similar thing. I think where the theme of Rashomon, right? The overarching sort of idea that everyone has their own truth and uh, no one knows what the truth may really be because we're all seeing our own thing. That's immediately established, right? To the point where people say that's what the movie is quote unquote about. And that feels so inadequate because it's like, of course, that's what the movie's about. That's what the movie tells you it's about within five minutes. That's sort of how I felt here with the, um, and, and like Rashomon, it uses that establishment as a means of getting you to a place quickly where like, because I knew that this movie was a movie about Antonius Block's existential fears and fear of death. I was able to understand the way the movie was suggesting that all of man's motivations, be they good or bad, graceful or selfish or cruel are motivated 
under that overarching umbrella of memento mori of their their mortality and their myriad responses to that mortality uh for good and ill right and that was such an effective means of getting me to understand who these characters were and the idea of this movie it reminded me a lot of that rashomon scene right where it was like i found i find rashomon's um recount the the wife's recounting so moving because the fact that we know that she's speaking her own truth makes her recounting of the disdain that her husband feels for her so impactful. Similarly, I found Antonius Block's um, monologues so impactful, and I found the actors' relationship with each other so impactful because it was happening under this this very dark, apocalyptic, um, literally apocalyptic plague, seventh seal um, of the apocalypse. Um, paler i guess uh now i'm rambling but do you know what i mean where it was like all of these scenes felt so emotionally resonant because they had established so clearly the framing that we were meant to um comprehend them with yeah i think i think that's true and i think that is like the next goalpost for me was okay so this movie in the opening scene and in several scenes following you know there's there's a scene where he um enters the confessional and just sort of like bears his heart and the audience knows poetic irony or dramatic irony whichever that that stage shit um where he the audience knows that it's death uh or at least i assume that they knew i i, I picked on that up pretty quickly uh but he's just sort of like letting it all out about, you know, the silence of God. Why can't uh, I kill God in me? Why does he live in me in a humiliating way? He says, despite my wanting to evict him from my heart, why is he, despite all a mocking reality, I can't be rid of. Uh, And that big, big Catholic moods there, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) spoken like a true Catholic. Uh, But that again, it's just like one after the other. It's like, okay, so it's introducing themes of, you know, uh, making the most of your time on earth and what you do with the time that you have. Uh, and that's the place that it puts you in so that you can understand something a little bit further and deeper. And I think that was, I don't, I don't want to say I struggled because again, it's like this movie, despite it being one of the like shorthand for incomprehensible, like old cinema, or at least in my perception as, as most people have referred to it, it has a pretty straightforward way of looking at that. Um, and not anything so impenetrable as that. Um, I guess what are some examples of when it, when it's suggesting, like you said, that, it, that uh, man's motivations are going to be best based on like the knowledge that he will die. Uh, how, how does the movie, like, what did it use? It uses other characters and the relationships to those uh, characters and like, and like how they bounce off of Antonius block. He's like a fairly small element of the plot, much smaller than I thought he was going to be honestly, uh, in that he guides people to a location later, but, and, you know, sort of, he plays off of their, uh, he, he saves their lives in some ways, but he's not, I guess he's not one of the driving forces of the plot more the story. Uh, but it's using those, those individual elements of the story, these various people's stories to, is it, is it using like the, uh, circus performers, not circus, but like the stage performers, their story is in your estimation, Harry, one of those where it's, it's now put us in the place to be like, okay, look at this movie through the lens of how we do what we do with the knowledge of our own death. Uh, and do you think that it's using those characters and those stories that are underneath Antonius blocks as like vignettes for that? 
is is that a bad read of what was going on there or is that also what you what you found I, I think that's a great read. I think that that's very similar to what I found. Just their their vitality and the strength of their love and relationship. Um, especially, I think it's important to know that Joe, the uh, the juggler, is a clairvoyant or uh, he has visions of the divine, right? And so he is sort of in an interesting way connected to death itself or connected to the divine. Um, and it brings him peace the his establishing character shot is the knowledge that he sees virgin mary with with the christ um and she is teaching the christ how to walk and he says that that vision early in the morning gave him a great serenity and that serenity goes with him and makes him this this sort of puckish cute um like mischievous figure and gives him a, a grace to to love uh his wife in a more um in a, in a less self-conscious and less uh, angst-filled way than the other characters. I think that their relationship is characterized by a fundamental lack of existential angst, which, which is so definitive for all of the other characters in this movie, not just Antonius Block or his uh, um, squire, whose name is uh, Jonas. Is that Jonas? I believe it is. Okay. Uh, yes. Um. But but also um, the village and the people themselves, right? I think that the prevailing motif in this movie is the plague. Um, Antonius and Jonas return from the Crusades only to find that the Black Plague is ravaging their home. And we get all sorts of interstitial cuts to people gossiping about the plague, like uh, classic dark fantasy style. It was so interesting to, as an aside, to see this movie and to understand its massive influence on even things like the Witcher series and like all sorts of other dark fantasy, like the, the place, the sort of really dire darkness that they're trying to establish here is so influential on so much like dark fantasy. So that was really interesting to see, but part and parcel to that is this idea that these villagers are constantly talking about the plague. There are village criers and and religious criers that are constantly talking about the plague. And the way they talk about it is as the end of the world, right? They, They go to this church that's still operating despite the plague. And this guy recounts to the squire how horrifying the plague is and how everyone has these different interpretations of what it means, where there there's now this cult of flagellators who wander the countrysides whipping themselves and others to atone for their sins to hopefully get God to spare them from this terrible thing that's happening. Everyone's talking about it as very specifically the end of the world, and it's bringing into stark relief how people act, right? Where some things only become apparent at the end, right? Where where the fact that, that we are now in the apocalypse, that things are ending, is making people think about their lives and the way they're living differently. That's a stark parallel to Antonius Block, who is now confronting his own mortality. And so in the face of all of that, these actors who are interested in new life, right? Their, their relationship is founded on their son, their uh, baby boy who they're bringing up and they're interested in being alive and expressing themselves joyfully and, um, and in, in ways that are life affirming 
right? Where they, they even have this sort of sacramental meal of wild strawberries and milk. It's interesting that wild strawberries are in this because uh, wild strawberries, Bergman's other movie came out later this same year, 1957. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think that, that, right. Like it's very pointed that actors are in this movie and that these actors are sort of monthly fools, right. Where they enjoy a, a very specific or not enjoy, but they suffer under a very specific interpretation, particularly in this time period of zealousness and of, um, religious persecution where they're sort of looked down upon by everyone. And yet they are able to create this space for themselves despite that. And I think that the way that we interpret that space and the fact that we spend so much time with these characters because of it is really important to what this movie's saying. Right. Again, in that very clear sense of like, like remember that you are mortal and look at how these people are spending their mortality versus how other people are. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the scene in this movie that helped me most with uh, framing, I guess everything that we see and it kind of gets, uh, I think it gets back into what you two are, have been talking about is uh, the scene with, I believe it's the squire talking with that painter and, you know, they're having a conversation about the things going up on this wall and uh, uh, Jonas or whatever his name, uh, yeah, whatever his name is. Uh, oh, I, he, I looked uh, it up. His, his, his name, name is Jonas. Hello. Whoops. Uh, do you want a clean cut of that, Harry? I think I talked over you. I do not. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but he's he's saying, you know, oh, you should, uh, you know, you're painting things that are uh, making people sad. You should paint happy things. And you, this is a couple scenes after we we meet death and we get the the duality introduced of, you know, this is uh, Antonius Block. He's alive. And then this is the angel of death. And he's you know, the end of the line and everything in between life and death is painted as not just a distraction from the inevitable, you know, our, our inevitable collective inevitable demise, but also things that feed directly from or into, uh, the life cycle or just death in general. Um, the, um, you know, we mentioned the, the, the clairvoyant, uh, actor and you know that that troop of actors there's uh there's a lot of great visual language that's going on here the director of of that actor troop has that that skull mask and it's sort of this idea put forth of you know we're we're playing death and meanwhile that visual reminder of death is is following us around or following these characters around pretty much in every shot of them going forward uh the uh kind of the the pairing off and tethering ourselves to, to other people. You know, we, we see a few couples in this movie. There's um, the manager of this, this I'm bouncing all over the place. The actor of this uh, performing troupe runs away with uh, a Smith's wife. And there's this sort of undercurrent of like, what will I be or will I cease to be if I cannot find, you know, my partner again, Uh, the, the, um, the the child um mikhail again just another very clear visual reminder of you know that this child is new life coming forth into the into the world and also the flip side being a, a persistent reminder that you know this this child the idea here is uh, anyway the child should out outlive its parents and that's kind of the driving uh, motivation it comes to be of of Antonius Block, you know his his one final deed. Make sure that this child uh, is is able to to exist. Meanwhile, 
we have this band of characters that is on its way to to leaving this world to leaving to leaving this this mortal plane um so every every reminder of life comes with it uh, a reminder of of our our eventual death i guess there there were some interesting dichotomies there Wow, you said a lot of really great stuff that I want to drive in on. Uh, first of all, I think that the mask, the death mask that the um, leader of the actor troupe wears is really important. I mean, it, it's like obviously important, right? But that gets at a couple of different things at once for me. The one being this sort of prevailing, again, motif of the roles we perform in our lives where um, the actors, they perform, they literally perform the roles of exaggerations of human life, right? Where they, there's a scene where they're discussing what type of act they're going to perform for this village. They talk about how most people really like body acts, but they also do heavily dramatic um, life and death stuff. There's, there's a, there are several different um, references to Hamlet throughout this. Uh, First of all, a lot of the characters bear resemblances to characters from Hamlet. I mean, there's an obvious uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern parallel between Antonius Block and his squire. They're going to Elsinore at one point, which is really fascinating to me. And then, of course, there's also the, the actors themselves being in Hamlet and in this. But... And there's this suggestion that something about the performance of roles, it reflects the way that you think about life. And we have these characters who, in Antonius Block and his squire, they had performed a role for their entire lives that now, at the end of their lives, they're deeply disillusioned by, but they're still doomed by it, right? I, Jason, you brought up this... Um, that line that Antonius Block says, where he says that, why can't I expunge God from my mind? Why can't I stop interpreting the world under that, uh, that framework, even though I've rejected it, even though I want more than that, or I want assurance, I can't help but see the world this way. I think that this movie is making a suggestion that we all can't help but see the world through the sort of roles that we perform. Um, and I think that there using the actors for that is a really good way to literalize that metaphor. Um, I also found it really good and ironic that the um, leader of this troupe, who is the most sort of afraid of death or afraid of um, his destiny as everyone's destinies are, um, is the one who is complaining about the mask. He thinks that he deserves more than that. He says, what kind of a mask is this for a leader of a troop to have? He's the one that runs off. Uh, with the woman to try to sort of extend his own life, so to speak. It's funny how uh, Antonius Block is literally trying to extend his own life. And in another way, everyone in this movie is doing that in their own way, uh, one way or another. Um, yeah, I uh, I lost the end of my thought, but go ahead, Jason. Oh, uh, well, if you pick it up again, let me know and we can hop back into it. I was just going to... I really find the the discussion of like the roles that people perform, sort of the dramaturgical sense of how these people exist socially and even on an eternal stage, right? Their own awareness of death. There are, like you said, most characters are trying to to uh, extend their lives as much as they can, whether it's like whether they're aware of it or not. 
sort of thing, whether it's just like right down to of, sex, right? I mean, like there's that line about a skull is almost as interesting as a naked woman. The mm-hmm. um, theater troupe leader is like compulsively runs off with this woman in the village. You get the sense that it's not the first time he's done this, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm curious, like, what does that awareness uh, do? for them as characters does it does it help them to understand that they need to do more with their lives does it help them just focus on the fact that like this is these are the opportunities and expectations like limited to me um you know for example antonius block as a crusader he is expected to go and you know uh murder and spread the uh awareness and adherence to you know his specific religion throughout the world and to um you know, subjugate other cultures under one banner. Uh, But when he realizes that that is what, like the part written for him as a crusader, like the the place that his life has taken him, he has immense regret over it. And the events of the movie transpire, you know, does it have that effect on every character or does, do you think that it tries to like show how differing levels of your awareness with your position can affect what you end up doing, like going back to that idea of remembering that they're going to die. Does it, does recognizing their position in life and the opportunities it affords them and the opportunities it closes to them, does it, does it affect them all equally or is it trying to say different things about different characters? Well, and and it's interesting that the movie again, directly answers this, right? Where Antonius Block and his squire, uh, which is, is it Jonas? I'm sorry. I keep forgetting. Sorry. I believe it's Jonas. Jans. My name is Jans. All right. Thank you. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) We can cut that out. There is, in fact, the Jonas, but a different character, I think. Yeah, sorry. Um, I'm not good at Swedish names because I am ignorant. Um, They're they're very disillusioned. They're defined by disillusionment, right? And, in fact, that disillusionment came from pride. Uh, Pride comes before the fall. And we're literally seeing the fall here, right? Where their level of disillusionment seems directly commensurate to the amount of pride and surety that they once had. Antonius Block is lamenting his his final um, the final destruction of his faith, which is also the final destruction of his surety about the path he's taking in life. And he even reflects upon the fact that how sure he once was of his life and his path enabled him to do terrible things that not only destroyed other people in the form of the crusade, which the the squire uh, points out was such a bad idea that only an idealist could have come up with it, which is a fucking incredible line. Um, but also they've, they've destroyed his interiority um, in what I think is the best, probably scripted passage of the entire movie, which I can just read if, if that's all right. Do you mind if I just read his little confession? Please, here? please. Do he says, uh, I want to confess as best as I can, but my heart is empty. The emptiness is a mirror, and in it I see my own face. It fills me with loathing and terror. My indifference to my fellow man has cut me off. I live now in a world of phantoms, a prisoner of my own dreams. <laughs> Which, I I listened to that, and I wrote it all down. And then I went online, and I saw that the script was reviled upon its initial release. Which is yeah. fucking what is, insane what is, Yeah. Maybe I'm just like very pretentious, I guess. And like this super works for me and and people were more interested in like realism or they had more um, education than I did or they weren't as affected by these things. But like, man, I know that this movie has a reputation for pretension that worked on me so well. I was like, holy shit, is that a good um, monologue? 
Um, and it puts it, it puts it right out on the table, right? Where um, later on, in fact, they meet Raval, who is a thief, who is a, a, intending to um, rob and rape a, a village girl from an abandoned village. Um, and he turns out to have been the uh, proselytizer that convinced them to join the Crusades in the first place. And the irony of this is not lost on the squire who even says, I understand now the purpose of the crusade. We were too proud. And so God sent us to put our, sent you to put us in our place. And so they went to this crusade, which was a terrible thing, completely the opposite of what they thought it would be. And then they came home to this plague. And so these are disillusioned people, whereas the actors are not disillusioned because they have ironically a more, um, realistic and informed understanding of their themselves in their roles because of the roles that they pretend to play, right? Where Antonius Block thought he really was a righteous crusader. These actors know that they're pretending, right, at life. And the fact that they're pretending gives them perspective to actually understand who they are and the course of their lives. Whereas Antonius Block, thinking that he was doing this great thing, now has to reconcile with the fact that it was only his pride that made him think that his life had some great purpose, that there was someone looking out for him in the first place. Um, and so there, there's this sense in which thinking that you're special or thinking that you're important is what makes death such a terrifying thing, right? This idea that you are destined, predestined for some great purpose is what makes death scary. Not death in and of itself, which is the destiny that all people are doomed for, but the idea that you're somehow more special than death, right? That you can you can become more than other people and that, that you deserve more than other people. Uh, this... The path that's leading me down when you say that, you know, thinking you're special makes death so horrifying and, you know, the concept of a memento mori so effective. So the movie answers that and, or at least in, in my estimation, tell me if I'm wrong, both of you answers that by saying that we find meaning in others instead, that we find meaning in causes, that we find meaning in community, that we find meaning in, you know, uh, <laughs> literally knocking over the chessboard so that death is distracted for another second and you can let, you know, an innocent mother and father and their child go free. That scene um, is so funny, by the way, as an yeah, aside, there's some really funny so, moments of this. It's the exact, it's like compared to what I thought the movie was going to be, it's fucking Ferris Bueller's day off. It's so goofy. It's so non at times nonsensical in a really like in a way that enriched for me the viewing experience. Anyway, Very much so. That's just one, uh, one, one point, one moment, but like, is it, is it saying something that concrete to either of you where the characters that it's introducing, and we're kind of coming back to the point that I was uh, bringing up earlier in the, in the episode. So apologies if this sounds like a retread, but it's, it's communicating that concept for, for me. It was, so the story of, of course, is from, it starts out from the perspective of, of Antonius Block, who is uh, on the edge of death and he is constantly confronted and never finds answers for uh, the purpose of life and the meaning of death and sort of what comes after, uh, you know, so aptly sort of summarized in his position as a crusader, not just like a casual adherent to uh, Roman Catholicism, but an active proponent of it. It's literal frontline 
um, soldier. Uh, but then of course, as more characters are brought in from more and more like strange backgrounds, uh, or like disparate and from different segments of society, is it, is it saying that where, you know, the, the way that we find meaning that like the memento mori isn't meant to just terrify you, the concept of memento mori, it's meant to spur action. It's meant to inspire community and like mutual understanding of the understanding self. is big. Right. Uh, like it makes me think of, I don't even know where it's from, but I've just seen the reaction image of Harry Dean Stanton and, uh, David Lynch talking to each other on, on camera. And, uh, and, <gasps> and Lynch asks him, uh, how would you describe yourself? And Harry Dean Stanton says, as nothing, nothing, there is no there self, is no <laughs> which you gotta see that interview, by the way, if you haven't seen that interview, it's my number one thing in life. I have never seen that actual interview, but I really, really badly want to. Uh, but I, but that that sticks in my head whenever I think about discussions of uh, the self and you know, sort of like where this movie positioned block specifically is. He comes to realize that in ways there is no self, there is no importance to my life except to make meaning in others. To to me, maybe that's maybe this is like the hippy dippy out there take on what this movie was doing for me. But that's how I saw it. Um, Harry Cody. Uh, I don't think that's out of uh, line at all, Jason. That's very similar to what I found, particularly the understanding. I think that not to to put all my cards on the table, I think that this movie is examining both sides of death and memento mori. I think it it opens with a rumination on the ways in which our mutual fears of death can divide people and how the fear of death is such a driver of man's inhumanity to man, right? Like, religion itself being this sort of um, oftentimes or potentially terrible thing that enables men to do terrible things to men out of the idea that doing those terrible things like crusades, like flagellation, like burning women at the stake will enable them somehow to escape the terrible fate that they're um, heir to, right? I mean, literally the crusades... In the original crusade, the Pope promised all of the crusaders a special place in heaven if they were to go to the Holy Land and commit atrocities on his behalf. That was like a literal thing that they said. That was what the proselytizers would go out to villages and say to people to get them to join the crusades. Um, and so this is a it's a movie that's examining all of the ways in which man's inhumanity to man is spurred by the idea that by doing things to one another, we can somehow escape from that. Um, at one point, Antonius Block says, um, we created an idol out of fear and we called it God, which is a, a pretty clear um, summation of what this movie's thesis on religion tends to be. But this movie also gets to ultimately the other side, which is to say that um, death is not only a great terrible divider, but it's also the ultimate unifier. It's the one thing that all people have in common, right? Even death himself is, is, uh, has no idea what follows death. At one point, Antonius Block asks him, he's like, you, you won't tell me anything. And death literally, he just in, in this very funny sort of Frank way, death says, I have nothing to tell, right? It's like, like death might be death himself, but even he doesn't know what an afterlife is. Even he doesn't have any sort of understanding of his larger place in the machinations of like nature. He's just death. And that's the idea behind this movie's understanding of death is that at one point, um, 
when Antonius Block is making one more plea, one more sad lament to spare his life, um, the squire says, there is no one to be moved by your suffering. And what he means by that is everyone is going to suffer exactly as much as you are. Like your death is not more or less special than anybody else's death. It's just death. But the fact that that is true of all people is actually a great uniter. Right. I mean, memento mori, remember that you're mortal, means that you have something in common with everyone and your fear of what follows, of what dreams may come after we die, is actually something that everyone shares. Everyone is afraid of death. Everyone's afraid of what comes afterward. And you're, you can let that fear make you do terrible things in an attempt to escape from it. Or you can use that fear as a means of empathizing with other people and as a means of doing great things, right? Um, the last really enduring image of this movie is that um, all of the characters who end up dying, being taken by death, they're forced to dance the dance macabre. Um, and what that is, is that's death leading people by the hands and forcing them to link hands. Um Joe, the, the juggler, has one more final vision of the people that he knew, and he says that death commands them to hold hands. And so we get this image of people of very different walks of life, right? There's a, there's a woman with no prospects from a doomed village, um, although she's not actually part of the dance, which is interesting. But there's the squire and his commander, his knight, and there are destitute people, but they're all linked in hands because ultimately they're all united. Right. And again, like, I think that's something that's, that the movie very clearly says. And I think it very clearly says it as a means of getting you to that same place where you walk out of this movie with a, not a renewed sense of your mortality, but a, um, focused idea of your mortality. This movie is going to make you think about death in the same way that, that the old medieval motifs in art were going to make you think about death. And the idea of thinking about that death in the modern sense, where this movie differs from that old stuff, is that it wants you to use that death drive, that, that fear of death, to be united with the people around you and to focus on what's important in life, I think. And that's what I took away from this movie. Yeah, uh, I forgot what your original question was, Jason. But uh, sorry, follow <laughs> following that up, um, the I guess the thing I wanted to comment on was I like that the seventh seal. I really like that it posits our own mortality as the one ultimate truth, and then our own individual truths are just what we choose to do with that knowledge. Which is why the um, the the sequences where we're in that village, uh, cross cutting between different different characters different arcs different uh randos it kind of made me want a version of the seventh seal where it's like true stories-esque we're just bopping around between a bunch of people in hell yeah. times and watching them reconcile uh their lives their deaths and just like how they choose to confront those things and you know as we see some people are you, you know they're they're blissfully aware of what's to come and choose uh you know to perform in a troop or you know have a family or do something else and others you know choose to make life on earth their own literal hell by for example tormenting someone in a bar and setting things on fire uh different people react to to the one ultimate truth differently um yeah 
Makes you think, huh? It's funny how you said that you wanted a sort of true stories version of this. This movie is already quite episodic, right? It almost feels like it could be a TV series. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I, yeah, it, and not, it's not even like backseat directing, but it's like, man, that's a flavor of this story that I feel like I would like a lot. Not to say that the the characters that we focused on weren't uh like satisfying or satisfactory i i like the the fact that that you know dozen or so people that we do focus on were so their their ambitions and their urges were so uh wholly constructed in about 90 minutes is like masterful filmmaking yeah it doesn't feel like any corners cut um your cody your experience with the movie you said you didn't you wouldn't say that you enjoyed watching the movie particularly is what I'm hearing maybe is that the perspective of block as like as lens here uh, as our main character, so to speak in ways of protagonist. Um, is that one of the things that you feel could have been changed for the better is having sort of a, we bop between them rather than we're always brought back to blocks perspective and his you know personal struggle or is that sort of like a good kaleidoscope do you think for viewing everybody else's individual stories uh that's a good question uh, honestly i like block as the sort of moderating centerpiece of this story uh my comment about not enjoying my experience with this movie was 100 i'm going through waves of sadness and loneliness being in this apartment by myself. And I watched, I'm thinking of ending things the day before watching the seventh seal. And I'm in a, weird, a lot of places right now. Um, yeah. But this, again, this is a, a movie that I think is, is brilliant. And under different circumstances, I think I would have enjoyed my experience. I, I didn't, I didn't not enjoy my experience with the movie because it is great in all the ways that, that have been, that have been covered. Uh, my experience watching it though was something entirely different, and I think I'm just chalking that up to my the harsh truth of of my reality, right? Right, right. Well, I mean, it's literally every day that we're confronted with the reality right. of, of death. Um, and yeah, sometimes sometimes pride separates us from our fo- fellow man, and sometimes it's a literal plague. So. Uh, very understandable. It's funny that the Trilon is showing the seventh seal during a quarantine. Um, and I think that any, um, reaction to it is very valid. I agree. Um, let's see, uh, plumbing the depths for last thoughts. Um, do you guys, I, Oh, sure. Uh, I guess one quick, uh, other like category of things that I don't think we quite touched on uh the you were talking about how this movie is framed and how it does so much upfront to contextualize our understanding of what we see after that uh the meeting of antonius block and death on the beach playing chess uh the, the famous shot of them of medium shot or, or a long shot of them i can't remember which of them sitting across from each other and the the shots leading up to that do so much as far as like uh, elements that are in direct opposition of one another, obviously the black and white of the chessboard, the living versus the the dead, but also the, the planes of physical earth, uh, you know, land and water. This is taking place along a, a coastline. There's, I, I didn't notice it my first time watching the seventh seal, but the fact that we see, uh, 
a couple of horses up to their ankles in in water was this weird um I'm blanking out on the word uh, contradiction that really stuck with me this time and then in a lot of shots going forward just seeing the the sky uh intersect with the plane of whatever uh grassy land they're they're marching across th- these subtle reminders of these worlds uh colliding with one another uh, softly I I will say and I, that aids the um the appearance of of things like uh, the the specter of death in the sequences where he's talking with Antonius Block or the the visions that that Yof sees uh along the way also that that juggler Yof just quick aside that motherfucker calls himself a juggler and he's just moving two beanbags between his hands um maybe that was impressive for the time but he's got Damn to, call him he, out he he's got to step it up uh sorry to say but um yeah i, I, I took uh, took issue with that a little bit um but shout out to you i'm sure he's trying his best um i really like what you said about the horses and about the skies it's interesting that that parallels some of the other rumors that we hear which is that during this time of plague people are talking about the end of the world not only in terms of the people dying but also in terms of weirdness right like there there are a couple of different asides that people have about like I heard that women are giving birth to cow's skulls or people are losing all of their skin or the, the ground is opening up such that the bodies can't lie in their graves and angels are descending from heaven, right? Like the movie does so much to establish that everyone thinks that these are the end times and the fact that they're the end times is what's making certain things apparent to everyone, Um and making everyone act the way they do. it It's such a great job of establishing a uniting, very appropriately, again, theme for everyone to reconcile with. It's like these are people uh, on the end of days, right? Like these are people perched on the precipice of the apocalypse. And the movie sort of says we're all sort of perched on the edge of apocalypse. We're all sort of playing uh, our game of chess with death. And the only answer is... Uh, how well you play because death is a cheater. <laughs> Literally, it turns out, which is the other thing about this movie is that we keep saying it's very funny. I, it's funny, right? Like John's the Squire in particular has this very like Yorick-esque or like um, Beckett-esque gallows humor toward death. He's this sort of would-be intellectual and he's very funny. Death himself has this very drawl sense of humor where when the leader of the acting troupe is killed eventually, it's because Death cuts down the tree he's hiding in and Death literally comes striding into the forest with like uh, a saw and he starts sawing away at, at this tree and then the actor starts talking to him like, hey, like, can you make an exception? And Death like pauses and he like considers for a second and then he goes, eh, not for you. And then he keeps sawing. It's so funny. Like there, there are some really funny parts to this movie. And I think that the humor is a really important part of establishing the sort of um, ironically stakes again. Right. Is that like, I think that Memento Mori and Dance Macabre sort of um, genre should be kind of funny. And I think that this movie does a really good job of that, that I didn't want to let go unsaid. I agree. It's sort of like the movie was removing, you know, the last piece, so to speak, between the characters in this world and their own mortality. It's like, is is there a term for that where it's like the last thing that must be done before 
like a thing is complete or before it, you know something's finished like like maybe maybe some something that binds things together and there's a certain number of them and like the last one all right well uh that was seven uh, samurai i think it's like that like there are there are there are certain things that seal back right 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 your yeah. emotions or something right and there's like a number of them and you have to you break them one by one and then finally there's a space of half an hour where there's great resounding and thundering in the heavens. I think you're getting at something like that. It's like a literary device maybe, or like a big yeah, yeah. biblical term. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like, again, An I'm animal, not a theologian maybe? or anything, but yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm just spitballing, you know, podcast. Um, well, uh, th- that I think in a weird way sort of lays out a lot of what I was thinking about this movie. Again, it's very, a lot more straightforward than I thought it was going to be. I thought I was going to be parsing a lot and, you know, this talking is helping me parse a lot, but I thought it was going to be much more thrown for a loop and confused by, uh, by the seventh seal than, than I ended up being, I guess, which is a good thing. Honestly, I like bending my mind around things while I'm watching them and that can be great. But, uh, in the end, if I'm, if I'm having, if I'm enjoying what I'm watching and then talking about it also later, rather than just confused in both times, that's, that's a net positive for me. Yeah, I would say if if anybody is interested in watching this movie, which I highly recommend, there are also some some places you can go to get some really great contextualization. Um, the Criterion Collection has two really good essays about it. Um, one by Gary Giddens in two thousand nine. It's called "The Seventh Seal." Here go the there go the clowns. Um, is a really great sort of summary of the movie's critical consensus and status in history and the context of film that everyone should check out. And then um, Roger Ebert, his great movie review that he wrote in 2000 um, is a really great similar summary and sort of take on the themes uh, critically established by this movie um, that are really good. One other thing, one other uh, section that everyone should check out when they're considering these movies are the uh, notes prepared by one of our good friends. We sometimes call them (gasps) Cody's Cody's. So that was bad even for me. So I'm going to fix that in post, man. Am I like going on a a tour of St. Anthony falls right now? Because wow, what a segue, Uh, but I'm, you can put a rim (laughs) shot in there, Jason, uh, after the, I can, can't, um, yeah, true. Uh, so, uh, we, uh, 1957 is the year this movie came out. Uh, as Harry, uh, quite correctly pointed out earlier, there was that comment about wild strawberries, uh, earlier in the seventh seal that, uh, is made by Mia funny considering Bergman did have another release being wild strawberries in this year, uh, looking up, uh, on Letterboxd, the top uh, most popular entries, uh, Seventh Seal occupies the number two slot for the year 1957, and Wild Strawberries is number four. Uh, I, I didn't do a deep enough dive to to see how many times this has been accomplished, uh, accomplished in the history of Letterboxd.com, uh, but there are, there's a, a lot of good company that these movies keep. Uh, in the 1957 standings. Uh, So those occupy two of the top seven. um, Looking at the other uh, popular entries uh, 
from that year. Uh, one of them, we don't have Aaron here, so I can't get his his uh, his take. One of these movies is a Federico Fellini movie that he loves. Um, takes place in the evening. <laughs> Are you guys Federico Fellini fans at all? Or am I, I grasping I- at stress? What's this that? This is going way over my head. I said I wish I was. I know I need to watch Fellini movies, but I don't think I've seen a single one. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna blame Twitter. No, no, that's fine. I'm gonna blame Aaron. Uh, he can shout out Knights of Kiberia from his Chicago uh, apartment. Um, number six might be a little more attainable. Uh, it stars uh, our buddy Alec Guinness. We were actually just talking about this movie uh, in previous weeks. He won an Oscar for this movie. Do you guys remember what it was? Is this uh, the Lady Killers? No, it's Bridge uh, on the River Kwai. Right? <laughs> it's, it's Bridge on the River Kwai. Alec Guinness did not win an Oscar for The Lady Killers, hey. uh, unfortunately. I'm just saying. Uh, number five uh, is a, an Akira Kurosawa movie that we did not record on. I saw it probably with you guys uh, when the Trilon did show it. It's got that, that famous uh, sequence with the arrows that's like famously dangerous. Uh, I, I know what, what it is. I'm waiting to see if Jason's got it. I, I do. Top of my head, this is uh, this is Throne of Blood. Yes, it is Throne of Blood. Hot damn! Yeah, the fifth most fifth most popular uh, movie on Letterboxd for the year nineteen fifty seven. Good company. Four, as we wow. said, is Wild Strawberries. Three is uh, one of my dark horse candidates for best Kubrick movie. Uh, it's a black and white war movie starring oh, what's his name, Kirk Douglas. Might be grasping at straws here too. Apologies. For Paths that. of Glory. Uh. Paths of Glory, indeed. Yeah, that shit's really good. Good take, man. That's a yeah. wild take, but a good one. Uh, like that and Barry Lyndon are tops for me. I, think. I love Barry Lyndon. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, and then, uh, like we said, number two, Seventh Seal. Uh, the number one most uh, popular movie on Letterboxd for the year 1957. Um, how do I say? Uh, it's a. I love this movie. It is. Uh, it does have a Criterion release. It's uh, you know just a bunch of sweaty dudes talking about uh talking about stuff in a you, sweaty room can you describe their emotional state to me are there 12 of them uh yeah there are 12 of them uh i would if i had to put a label on what their their general vibe was you know their mood uh, uh mad um maybe kind, even of kind, of, right? yeah. kind of furious yeah scathing even uh, again they were all uh adult uh grown boys um so whatever a dozen term. pissed off dudes Yep. Hey, a dozen pissed off dudes. Yes, 12 Angry Men is the most pop. I, I would have reckoned probably, well, maybe not far and away. Seven Seal is pretty popular amongst uh, letterboxed bros. Um, so yeah, that, contextualizing that a little bit. Um, it's a nice reminder of titles that uh, that I need to probably watch. I need to see Wild Strawberries, uh, for one. And um, I know we're, we're cutting pretty close to time here. One quick last uh, prompt that I want to wanted to put forth you guys um you know we, we see antonius block he chooses chess as his uh means <laughs> of, of prolonging his life how would you two combat death in an attempt Ooh. to uh to save or at least prolong your lives and if you need time to think about it i'd be happy to go first i want to um i'll let you actually answer first but i want to lay a ground rule is this a game in which uh, we can keep the game going longer or w- in which we think we can win and like put it to bed and, and having one live longer. Could, uh, that's a fair question. I guess my 
my idea of of this scenario is something that you do in a you know a battle against death that you could most feasibly win and not you know exclusively as me oh i'm just okay. going to kick the can down the road so prioritizing your own skill versus your your ability to prolong the thing so i guess like for me okay. how i how i uh, envision my answer to that is uh first off avoiding mind games you know even though i do like daily extreme level sudokus i just imagine the spec you know the specter of death looking at a puzzle and being like boom that is the answer because i am benevolent and all-knowing uh and all kill and all killing uh so i i went the route of you know a, a physical engagement you know i would play the angel of death in a in a game of tennis or honestly a foot race uh especially you gotta think that- you got to think that the robe would slow him down either way. So that's a pretty good. Yeah, exactly. Like he doesn't, you know, the calves on death are not, you know, they're, they're just, you know, these, these, these twigs, I imagine. I, I got to think I can run a faster Atrophy. mile, a faster mile than, than death, uh, especially death in this movie. Uh, you know, it's, it's not called the relay race macabre, right? He's not, he's not sprinting. He doesn't have those, those quads. Exactly. So that's that's how I approached it. Um, but what do you guys think for for yourselves? One v one items off Final Destination Smash Bros. That's that's the Let's one I could go. Think. Who, do you, who do you think that Death would play in Smash Bros? Death's main is oh man, there's so many. Would he be a dick and pick like Meta Knight or something? Almost certainly. Meta Knight's uh, a pretty good guess. I I'll I I put money down that he would pick Meta Knight. Um, you know, he, he got into it in college, so Brawl released around that time, and he just really found himself gravitating toward uh, toward Meta Knight. Uh, yeah, I, I, I honestly think that I could defeat death in a game. I'm not the best player in the world, so I think that there are a whole league of people uh, above me who could also do the same thing, but I think I can comfortably beat him. Uh, okay, I've got two answers. The first one, obviously, I would invite death on the pod. He seems like he would be a great participant, and <laughs> this would be a game because I would just talk him to death, pun intended, because as you all know, I can go on forever about just about anything, including movies. Shut up. So, but also, again, these are the best conditions to invite him on the pod, right? Because he can't touch us. Exactly. It, he would have to be in his own small apartment. And we would all just talk and I would talk about movies forever and ever. And he would get so bored that he would give up on me. So that's my first answer. And then uh, more conventionally, I guess, um, I recently just beat all of Jason's high scores in the video game Batman Arkham Knight. Uh, So I'm feeling pretty confident about that. And so I think what I would do is I would challenge death to uh several challenges in batman arkham knight and if he ever beat my score i would have one more chance and we would sort of go back and forth uh at infinitum as we both beat each other's high scores so that would be my other answer harry check again in like uh 10 seconds oh no did you just do the wayne's world like we're changing the reality noise Get a load of get a load of this guy, Cam. Uh, well, Cody, am I wrong in assuming that that was the end of Cody's notice? Uh, you are not wrong. In fact, I would say you are correct. I am correct. I win. The other uh, one. See you later, Death. Well then, uh, thank you so much, listener, for listening to our episode about the Seventh Seal. It is playing this coming weekend at the Trilon. Get your tickets at trilon.org. If you go, wear a mask. If you don't go, watch it at home. Buy a ticket. 
Uh, if you do go, again, wear a mask. Don't bring things into the theater. Uh, don't do anything that's, that would require you to remove your mask in the theater. Uh, just be respectful. Do the damn thing so that we don't all face certain death uh, and disproportionately affect people who really, really, really don't need death in their lives right now. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintenufus. I've been Cody. Please, uh, I implore you all, only think kind thoughts and only perform noble deeds. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. Don't be proud. Remember that we're all going to die and wear a mask. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. <sighs> well, fellas, I shall remember this hour of peace. These strawberries, this bowl of milk, your faces in the dusk. Jason asleep, Harry with his lyre. I'll try to remember what we spoke of, and I'll hold this memory between my hands as carefully as a bowl brimming with fresh milk, and it will be a sign for me and a source of great content. Och ni som sitter i det självbelåtenhet vet ni att detta kan vara er sista timme. Döden står bakom er rygg. Jag kan skriva hans gässa blänker i solen. Hans nio blickstrar när han höjer den bakom era huvuden. Vem av er ska han drabba först? Du där, så det blir som är get. Ska din mun innan kvällen förvridas. En sista oavslutare i äspningen. Och du kvinna. Som blomstrar livets lust och välbehag. Ska du blikna och slockna innan morgonen gryr. Ja, du där. Med din svullna näsa och ditt enfaldiga flide. Har du ett år kvar att smutsa jorden med ditt avskröda? Vet ni alla förstockade dårar att alla ska dö? Idag, eller imorgon, eller nästa dag, att vi alla är dömda. Hör ni vad jag säger? Hör ni ordet? Dömda, dömda, dömda! I vår förnedring vänd inte bort ditt ansikte från oss i vängelse och frakt Utan var kunna dig över oss för din sons Jesu Kristi skull Vi är sirenier